So from chapter 1, in, in chapter 1, verses like say 5 to 14, the author of Hebrews is really focusing on Jesus' deity. And we talked a lot about that last week. We talked about how he gave this, what we call the string of pearls, this kind of Hebrew rhetoric to make this argument for the deity of Christ, that Jesus is indeed God the Son. If you weren't here last week, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that message. It's a very important message for the foundation of all that the author of Hebrews is going to lay out. And now he kind of switches gears. He's kind of still in this topic of angels and how Jesus is superior to the angels, but he's switching from talking about the deity of Jesus, the deity of Christ, and he's talking about now the humanity of Christ. Now, we mentioned last week that probably many of you who came thought, okay, I've already believed that Jesus is God, I already understood that. Um, But I don't know if you realize this or not, but in the first century church, the first followers of Jesus had a harder time believing that Jesus was man than they did that he was divine. They believed he had to be somehow divine. In fact, there were these, this teaching that ended up morphing into what we call now Gnosticism. So the, the kind of seeds of this false teaching called Gnosticism were around even in the first century here, and they taught that Jesus could not have been flesh and blood because they held on to a false Greek idea that flesh, blood, the material world was evil. So anything material is bad. And so therefore, there's no way God would come in material. God would clothe himself in human flesh. That would be a step backwards. That would be becoming something bad. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that God made the, eternal, the, the material universe. God made it. It pleased him to make it. And he declared it good. The material universe, he declared, is good, which is why even now, even though this material universe has fallen or or affected by the fall of man, even though that's the case, it's still a good universe. It's still beautiful. It's still useful. It still is right to be enjoyed. It brings glory to God that we enjoy the material universe. Do you understand that? I hope that sets you free if you're thinking material's bad, because it's not bad. If you're married, enjoy sex. God made it. It's supposed to be enjoyed. If you're going to eat today, enjoy food. God made it. It's supposed to be enjoyed. You know, God made the material universe. If you have a job and you like accomplishing what you do in your job, enjoy it. God made you for that work. It's a good thing. The whole reason we encourage people to pursue science as believers. We say, yeah, do good science. Why? Because God made this good world. He wants you to observe it and glean as much as you can from it. But there was this idea that ended up being what we called in the second century Gnosticism, this idea that none of the material world's bad. And so the seeds of that idea were creeping in the church here. And they were thinking, no, you know, this Jesus character, he couldn't have been really man. And so what the author of Hebrews wants to do is he wants to not only show that Jesus is man, but maybe even more importantly, make us understand why it's essential to our salvation. It's essential to your relationship with God. It's essential to all that we hold on to as Christians to understand the humanity of Jesus. And so with this whole theme of Hebrews being that Jesus is better, We've talked so far that Jesus is a better message, better than what the Old Testament prophets said. We talked last week about Jesus being a better messenger. He's not just an angel sent from God, but God the Son. Now, we're going to talk about Jesus being the better human. And this by itself is important. 
It's important because all of us, I don't know about you, I, I would say I am, and I'd be willing to bet you guys as well, but most of us are looking for some sort of example. We're looking for something that we can go, that gives me hope for us. Not just the standard of what's right or what's wrong, but hope that, that what we sense should be good can be good. And Jesus brings that to us. He shows us that all that God intends that good should be has been given to us in Christ. We can know what it is, we can identify what it is, and we can experience that good because of His humanity. And so this is what I want to talk about today. I want to give you four basic things. If you guys got your little A5 bit of paper there, you're welcome. That's free. Helps you follow along. I want to give you four basic things about Christ's humanity, about Jesus' humanity. The first one is this. His humanity overcomes our failure. So the author in verse 5 starts off this section by saying, He, speaking of God, has not put the world to come, it's the future world we're waiting for, the new heavens, the new earth, He has not put that to come, of which we speak in subjection to the angels. Now we have to understand the Scripture teaches super clearly that God chose humanity, not the angels, to rule this world. Now, if you think about it, it would have made more sense for Him to choose the angels. They're more powerful than we are. They're stronger than we are. They're smarter than we are. Uh, they weren't subject to death the way now we are. So you would think He would have chose them, but He didn't. In fact, the author says in verse 6, he quotes Psalm chapter 8 here in verse 6 about that very fact, okay? He says, quoting Psalm 8, what is man, speaking of humanity, you might say, what is humanity that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? Notice you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him Yet you have crowned him with glory and honor, and you set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. This is the psalmist going, God, it's amazing that you would take us who are lower than the angels and say, you rule the world. That's exactly what God did. In the creation account, this is exactly what we see. In fact, listen to this. Genesis chapter 1 should be on the screen, verses 28 to 31. God says, let us probably a reference to the Trinity. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them, notice, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in His image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Then God blessed them. Notice that He says, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. God says, here's my plan. I'm going to make man in my image less powerful than the angels, less able than the angels, yet in my image reflecting something of my glory, male and female together, together reflecting something of my glory. I'm going to make them that way and say, you now rule the planet. And the psalmist is celebrating this. He's going, man... What a mind-blowing thing that God would choose us. But then at the end, uh, the first part of verse 8, what does he say? He says, he confirms this, he sums this up, he says, for in that he has put all 
in subjection under his feet. He left nothing that is not under him. In other words, because it's all under Adam, there's nothing that wasn't under Adam. But look what he says, second part of verse 8, but now we do not see all things put under him. Okay. Has humanity filled the earth? Well, pretty much so. There's not very many places that are uninhabited. Yeah? Most of the planet is, has people on it, right? There's very few places that aren't uninhabited. And if they're uninhabited, they're usually uninhabitable. Okay? They can't, they can't live there. But He's filled the earth. But has He subdued it? No. Not really. In fact, one of the things that's a sad fact of human history is that man ruling the earth has brought death and disease and destruction. In fact, even it's really sad that even the more advanced we get technologically, knowing what we should do, the less we do it. It's interesting. Why is that? Well, here's what God had said. Listen, again in Genesis, here's what God said to man when He gave them, uh, when he gave them this dominion. Here's this, the guidelines He sets. It says in Genesis 2, then the Lord took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. In other words, start your dominion here, okay? Tend and keep this spot here. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Literally it means dying you will die. The death process will begin. Now, what did Adam do, of course? He disobeyed. Eve was deceived. Adam disobeyed. Adam disobeyed. What happened? Corruption entered in, into creation. And ever since then, even though man has continued to move towards dominion or tried to, he's never succeeded. In fact, more power man gives himself, the more things go pear-shaped, it seems. So th- this is what the, the psalmist is talking about. He's talking about, look, Okay, here's this reality. God doesn't give the rule of earth to angels, but to men. The psalmist celebrates this. Scripture teaches this. But man is yet to actually subdue the earth. Man is yet to, to deal with the earth the way it's meant to be dealt with. So what's the solution? We don't see things yet put under humanity. So what does he say? Verse 9, listen. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, In other words, he was made a man. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Now, the idea of tasting there is the idea of experiencing death. In other words, Jesus had to be a real man to really experience death. Now, what's this got to do with the rule of creation? Listen, the point that the author of Hebrews wants us to see is, okay, humanity has failed they haven't brought this planet into, into submission. They have not brought it into the right subjection of God. They've failed. And because they failed, they've brought forth death. But God sends Jesus. Because God is gracious, He sends His Son Jesus to do what? To absorb the consequences of our death. This is why you see all throughout the Gospels how Jesus talked about the necessity of Him going to the cross. Listen to this, Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. This is the first of three times in Mark's Gospel, right in a row, three chapters in a row, where Jesus talks about the necessity of Him going to to the cross. It says, And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, speaking of Himself, 
must literally, uh, must, that is literally, it is necessary and binding, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. You see this all throughout the Scripture, all throughout the Gospels where Jesus, even though He's coming and He's showing He has dominion over the earth as the perfect man. Mark's Gospel specifically lays that out. Jesus shows He has God's authority over the earth. He has God's authority over sickness. Heals anybody He wants. He has God's authority over demons. Cast them out at will. He has God's authority, listen, He has God's authority even over creation. Huge storm comes, seasoned fishermen think they're going to die. Jesus says one word, peace. Whew, calm, glassy, perfect water skiing conditions. Just by one word, power, authority over creation, the authority of God over creation. Jesus has authority over death. Raises three people we know at least from the dead. He shows he has that authority. But what he says he must do so that this can be fulfilled, so that our failure as humanity can be fulfilled and he can rule the world, what he must do, he says, I must suffer, I must be rejected, I must be killed, and I must rise again three days later. And he does it. See, what we haven't done, what we cannot do on our own, Jesus does because He's the perfect man. He's the better man. Interesting that the Scripture calls him in 1 Corinthians 15 the last Adam. The first Adam fails, representing all of mankind. The last Adam succeeds, representing all mankind, at least those who believe in him. It's his humanity, guys. Listen, it's the fact that he's a man that he can come and say, now the earth will be ruled by humanity in the way it's meant to be. Now, we're in this tension time right now where because Jesus has come, the kingdom has begun. It's already. But because he hasn't come back, it's not yet. And we're living in this tension of between the already and not yet where we know Jesus rules, he reigns, and we want his authority to be over our lives. That's what it means to have faith in him. It means to say we want him to rule our lives. We believe he's the good one. He's the one who can rule. And we're waiting till the day that he comes back and puts all things into subjection under his feet. So, his humanity overcomes our failure to rule this world, okay? That's the first thing. Second thing, listen, his humanity defines our brotherhood. I love to call people bro. Adam and I do it all the time, bro. It's a bit ridiculous, I admit, but I just love the idea, seriously, of brotherhood, brothers, sisters. I love this idea. I think I love this idea, one, because I grew up sort of being raised by my three older brothers. And yeah, they beat the crud out of me all the time. That wasn't too fun. But the truth was, it made me tough. And also, they were there for me. They had my back. When my brother, who's six years older than me, when his girlfriend didn't want to go to Disneyland with him, he took his little brother instead. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Pretty nice for a teenage boy to do that. He took me instead. When, then several years later, when I was a teenager and I blew up his custom car, he didn't kill me. He made me pay for it and mow his lawn every week for six months, but still, he didn't kill me. They're good brothers. So brotherhood, naturally speaking, means loads to me. 
It means tons to me. But sometimes we can be so casual about brotherhood. You know, seriously, in California, it's very common to go, bro, what's up, bro? How you doing, bro? Everyone's a bro. <laughs> and there's a common brotherhood that we have being sort of humans born under Adam. But this brotherhood that we have as believers in Christ is something specific. It's something that Jesus himself defines that we have to recognize. The author says this, notice verse 10, for it was fitting for him, speaking of God, it was fitting, it was the right thing to do, for him from whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory, that's us, this is a generic term, sons and daughters, okay, generic term for that, we're being brought to glory, we're going to be made like Jesus, to bring many sons to glory, listen, to make the captain of their salvation <coughs> perfect through suffering. Now let's talk about this. The captain of our salvation. Who's the captain of our salvation? Jesus is. When we say the captain of our salvation, it means he's the, the captain. It's the same word that's going to be used later on in, in Hebrews where he says that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. Okay, It means like he's the pioneer. He went first. He hacked the path through the bush. Bless you. <laughs> he hacked the path through the bush. He made a way for us. He's the captain. He went, before, he went up front. Okay, So him being the captain of our salvation, it says here that God made him perfect through suffering. Now the word for perfect is an idea of complete, uh, made him sufficient. Now, you might read that and go, okay, how does that work? Because I thought Jesus was perfect. How do you make perfect perfect? When we talk about Jesus and his humanity, the Bible's really clear. Hebrews is going to be really clear. We'll see this. That there was no sin in Jesus whatsoever. None. He wasn't sinful at all. Okay, the Bible's going to be really clear about that. But it's important for us to understand that what this is talking about in Hebrews is, is that Jesus... Just coming to earth, just his incarnation, you know what we celebrate at Christmas, God becoming man, just his incarnation wasn't enough to save us. He also had to live a perfect life. He also had to die a, a, a substitutionary death. He also had to be raised again the third day. And so this idea that of when he says it was right that he made the covenant of our salvation perfect or complete through sufferings, he's not saying he was imperfect, he's saying the perfect one completed the perfect work through suffering. That's the idea. But there's more to it than this. There's an application here for us that the author of Hebrews wants us to understand. When we're talking about the fact that his humanity defines our brotherhood, listen, what makes us brothers is common experience. What makes us brothers and sisters is common experience. Have you guys ever seen the TV series Band of Brothers? Anybody here? A few of you? Okay, you guys have. A bit violent, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. Well done, but it's a bit violent. But it's about basically World War II soldiers and how these guys from radically different backgrounds and uh, different parts of the world, different parts of the states, in this case, American army, that when they, we fought World War II, they, they bonded. This is a very common experience in battle among soldiers. The soldiers, when they battle, they get a, a, a connection that is really pretty much unknown in any other circumstance. They knit together. Now, whatever your opinion is of war, it doesn't make a difference. The point is, that experience knits them together in a very unique way. They become a band of brothers. In fact, 
A lot of soldiers that are interviewed today will talk about the fact that really their, their commitment on the battlefield is, it has very little to do with the ideology of the country that sent them. It has more to do with the person that's sitting right next to them, their brother in arms. There's a connection that happens to this common experience, literally this common suffering that they go through. And so what Jesus, or I'm sorry, what the author of Hebrews is saying about this is, listen, it's saying that we suffer as believers, as brothers of Christ, we suffer according to His sufferings. And what we read in the book of Acts is that the people who do that count it an honor to do so. You guys remember that in Acts chapter, I think it's chapter 5, where, where I think it's Peter and John who get beaten for preaching Jesus. I think it's the second time they got beaten for preaching Jesus, if I'm correct, and they get released, and it says they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for His name. They felt a kinship with Jesus because they suffered with Him. Our brotherhood is about that. It's partly about the fact that we suffer according to His sufferings. We suffer in some of the same ways He suffered for the same reasons He suffered. But also, listen, verse 11 says, For both He who sanctifies, that's Jesus who sets us apart, makes us holy, and those, are being, those who are being sanctified, that's us who are being made holy, are all of one. Literally, the same family. In other words, listen, what He's saying here is, we are made holy according to His holiness. In other words, we, all, we don't have just a common experience and suffering that defines our brotherhood. We have a common experience in holiness. Later on in Hebrews, we'll see that it says that, that, that of Jesus that He learned obedience to the things that He suffered. He learned how to be more faithful to God. I, I think it's important for us to recognize something, especially for us in this church, because one of the things that we stress a lot through teaching is your position before God in Christ. And that is so important. It's so important to recognize that you've been given sonship through Jesus, that you have a position through faith in Jesus before God. It's, it's an amazingly important thing. But it's also important to recognize that that position was never given to you like a, some sort of a bus ticket where you kind of stick it in your pocket and you use it when it's time, like right before you die. It's basically, listen, a, a driver's license. <laughs> it's like a bus driver's license. That God doesn't say, just get on the bus whenever you feel like it. He says, get on the bus and start driving and pick up as many people as possible. (laughs) And here's how you pick them up. Listen, you're going to pick them up and they're going to recognize you're the right bus to get on because you suffer according to His sufferings. And listen, because you're being made holy according to His holiness. Sanctified means to be set apart or holy. Now, let me say this as well. When we're talking about holiness, don't think, holy... I am holier than anyone. Don't think that. And don't ever sing like that. It's really bad. It's not that kind of like, oh, I'm holier than anyone else. Holy means to be distinct. And interesting in the New Testament, when the Bible talks about holiness, it's almost always, listen, connected to love. Connected to loving in a sacrificial, self-sacrificial way, the way God loves us, the way Christ loves us loved us. Holy. Now, notice too that it says in verse 11, it speaks of two parties. It speaks of Him who sanctifies, Jesus, the one who does the work, but also 
those who are being sanctified. One is already in a sanctified position. That's Jesus. He's already set apart. He's already holy. Therefore, God can declare us holy. But also, those who are being sanctified, they're in the process of being set apart, being made holy, being taught to love. This, listen, this kind of humanity is what defines our brotherhood. Who are we as Christians? We are brothers with Jesus. We are those who are willing to suffer with Him according to the sufferings He suffered. And we are those who are being set apart, being made holy, being taught to love the way He loves us. Not only that, listen, it says because of that, for this reason, because God's doing this work in us and because this work is evident in our lives, for this reason, notice, He is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus isn't afraid to say, bro, to us. And here's some verses he gives to back it up. He, he quotes two scriptures. First he says, I will declare your name to my brethren. This is Psalm 22. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. Remember last week we talked about how it would be blasphemous uh, in, in almost any culture or any situation to worship a man unless that man is Jesus, who's the God-man. So it's right for us to worship Jesus. Jesus accepted worship. That's one of the reasons we believe he's deity. But do you realize too that when we worship he worships with us. We worship, Je- we worship Jesus, but we worship His Father. We worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus declares that worship. He shows us how it's done. It's amazing. I want you to think about this. Listen, these, these kind of quotations that the author is using to talk about the fact that we're brethren with Him. He says, I will put my trust in Him. Jesus was one who trusted the Father. He says, here am I and the children whom you've given. In other words, listen, His humanity defines our brotherhood. Our brotherhood is this. We trust in His Father according to His faith. When we say God is our Father, we don't just mean the fact that He created us. He's created everybody. We mean the fact that He's adopted us. He's adopted us. And, any, and, you, and the adopted parents here will tell you that their adopted kids are just as important, as important to them as biological kids. They will tell you that. Adopted them. They are, you're into this position. There's no difference in standing. And Jesus, look at, that's why Jesus says to his disciples before he goes, he's going to be crucified and then resurrected and ascend to the Father. He says, I go to Your Father and my Father and your Father, my God and your God. He's saying, listen, do you realize in me, I'm lifting you to this exalted position? This brother. But also, listen, we talk about putting our faith in Jesus, but we also need to have the faith of Jesus. Jesus trusted his Father. He knew his Father did all things well. He knew his Father was good. He knew his Father was glorious and loving. He loved his Father, and that didn't change at all, even when he was in the garden, even when he was being beaten, even when his best friends rejected him, even when he was being crucified. The whole time he knew he could still trust his Father. Think about this. Think about when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even then, he still identifies his father as my God, 
Not, oh, you God, you God, my God, you're still my God, where are you? And of course, the Father was pleased to bruise him for our sake and was pleased to resurrect him for our sake as well. See, guys, this is what we mean by brotherhood. This is not just about the fact that we have a common experience. What we experience is bigger than being in a war together. We are in a war together. It's a spiritual battle. But what we experience is we experience the love of the Father. We experience the, the, the fellowship of His sufferings, Christ's sufferings, because we're willing to lay down our lives for His sake and for one another. We're willing to grow in holiness and be set apart to love each other the way He loves us. That's what defines our brotherhood. Now, when I talk about that, that's something that serious, that deep, that intimate. Can you see why it's a big deal that you try to be at church whenever it's possible? No, I'm serious. Can you see why we bug you all the time about trying to join a small group? Can you see why we make we, we say, look, it's really this is why we have a break between music and the word, worship and the word. Why do we have this break in between? Because part of how we live out what Christ has done for us is to be brethren, wanting to know each other. I want you to ask, I'm going to ask you a really serious question, only semi-tongue-in-cheek. If you were to die today, and you were to face God, and He was to say to you, how many people's names did you know in Servants Church? This is, the, this, is the, this is the exam now. You're in or out based on this. Can you name every person that went to Servants Church? Would you get in? Neither would I. <laughs> but isn't that sad? Seriously, isn't it sad that we don't take serious enough? I know we're, we are frail people. Our, our ability to have relationships is, is really minimized by our, not just our own selfishness, our own inadequacies. We just don't have the emotional energy to know everybody equally. That's a fact. But can we be honest and say that we've been called brethren of, with Jesus and we are called, listen, to be brethren the way He defines brotherhood? I, I, can't, I personally, I can't imagine Jesus saying, you, you over there, what's your name? Uh, Peter. Yeah, Peter, come on, let's go do this thing together. Now, he knew Peter better than Peter knew himself. This kind of brotherhood is so important. It, it, this is why he died, to give us this. His humanity defines our brotherhood. Next, quickly, third one. His humanity releases our fears. This is where it starts to get really, hopefully, freedom-inducing for us. Check this out. Verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children, that's those who are brothers with Jesus, have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. He became flesh and blood. That notice, through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Now, how does the devil have the power of death? Well, Jesus said about Satan in John 8, 44, I think it is. He said about Satan that, uh, that the devil is a murderer. He says later on in chapter 10, he talks about the thief comes to kill, kill, steal, and destroy. Now, don't get me wrong. The enemy wants to do two things. Okay, here's what Satan does, okay? I don't, I got to explain this too, don't I? 
When I talk about Satan, don't think about the dude in a red sort of suit and a pitchfork and, you know, and definitely don't think of sort of like God's opposite and he's really strong like God, but he's the bad one. No. Satan is just an angel who rebelled against God, knows that hell was created for him and wants to take as many people with him as possible. He's doing a dang good job. What he basically uses is lies. But here's what he tries to do to us. First, he holds death over our head. Before we understand and know him who conquered death, Satan hangs death over our head. We're so afraid that our life is going to be wasted or it's going to be over soon. This is why people give up on their marriages. Because their marriage is less than satisfaction and they go, is this it? Is this all I'm going to get? I'm going to be dead soon. I'll bring it out while I can get out. This is why, listen, this is why people ignore their children. This is why students cheat on exams because they think their life is just this short time between birth and death, somewhere 70, 80, 90, if they're lucky, if they're healthy. And it's all about that. So they, they're, I've got to cheat death. I've got to see what I can get the best out of this life now. But what happens is the devil doesn't just hold that over our head. He also looks to kill us. Think about the things, seriously, think about the things that we are most driven to, specifically our bodily appetites. Sex. Do you, do you have any clue? I don't care how much propaganda is out there about how great condoms work or how they're finding all kinds of great cures for diseases, for venereal diseases, which I'm thankful for that, obviously. But do you know how many people get sick or die or become infertile because of sexually transmitted diseases? Think about the kinds of things that we want to do. We, want to, we so desperately want to feel better or numb our pain. What do we do? We get into substances, drugs and alcohol. I can testify personally the destruction that those things bring. Think about how many, how many of you guys here without a show of hands experienced the agony, and I mean that, I'm not exaggerating, the agony of a parent who overworked and was never there for you. See, the enemy says, do these things, and these things kill relationships, and they kill families, and they kill us. That's, the, that's what the Scripture means when it talks about Jesus, or, sorry, Satan having this power of death. But that's been destroyed. In fact, interesting when it says that he might destroy him, that the de- saying that the devil himself has been destroyed. Does that mean the devil doesn't exist anymore and he doesn't do anything? No. The Bible's super clear. We wrestle against these de- demonic beings in Ephesians chapter 6. So what's it mean? The word for destroy there, listen, it's a word that means rendered useless or rendered inoperative. In other words, it's like, think of, of Satan and his demons as pit bulls wanting to just charge and, and scare and destroy and Jesus went through every single pit bull and yanked out all their teeth and all their claws. So yeah, they can clamp down kind of hard sometimes or they can rah, 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 bark gumless at you. But they have no teeth. They can't do any real damage. You know what else? Listen. He says also in verse 16, notice, he says, I'm sorry, verse 15, he says, 
and release those by destroying the devil's ability to hold death overhead. Listen, release those who, the, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. It's the second thing the devil does, okay? One, he tries to destroy us by lying to us about things, but also, listen, he holds judgment over our heads. He's called the accuser of the brethren. He constantly says, you are guilty, you're worthy only of God's judgment. Anybody here ever felt condemned? Anybody here ever blown it and thought, that's it, no, there's no way God can love me anymore, there's no way I could really be a Christian anymore? Anybody ever felt that way? I wonder how many of you guys felt that way this morning. It's a constant lie the enemy brings to us. But what did the Apostle Paul say? The Apostle Paul, who knew he was a sinner, he called himself the chief of sinners, he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Gain. He could look death in the face and say, come on, whatever. You want a piece of me? He was not afraid to die. Why? Because death had lost its sting. Why? Because Jesus has taken the judgment. Listen to what the Scripture says. Notice 1 John. This is uh, uh, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. It says this, listen. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness or confidence in the day of judgment, because as He is, that's Jesus, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Talking about he who fears judgment. Again, this word perfect here means complete, or you could say mature. One of the measures of maturity for us as believers in Jesus is not being afraid of death. Now, when I'm talking about the process of dying, that doesn't sound too fun. It could be painful, it could be difficult, so we're not talking about that. It's natural and even right to not want the process of dying, okay? That's why we should have real compassion for people in that situation, for both them and their families. It's a serious thing. But we don't have to be afraid of death itself. We don't have to be afraid of it anymore. Do you understand? He's released that from us. We're, we don't have to be afraid of judgment. Why? Because we are objects of His perfect love. Because of the Father's perfect love. Why? Because of the Son's perfect love for the Father. We've been released. That fear is gone. We don't have to have that. And who gets that? Look what he says, verse 16. For indeed, he doesn't give aid or this help to angels, but he gives aid or this help to the seed of Abraham. Who is the seed of Abraham? Listen to this. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. Identifies the seed of Abraham. He says, if you, this is NIV, if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In other words, listen, he releases us from fear by what? Applying the work of Christ to any and all who believe. What did we read just earlier in Hebrews? He tasted death for who? Everyone. See, here's the thing, guys. It's not, it's not an issue of whether or not what Jesus, listen to me. It's not whether or not Jesus died for your sins. He did. That's a fact. It's whether or not you believe it. 
It's not, it's not an issue of, of what, what you feel, whether you feel fearful. The issue is if you believe that he's done what it takes for those fears to be cast away, for you to be released. Faith. Do you believe him? Do you trust him? Do you trust the Father? Do you trust the creator God that what he did in sending Jesus was enough? That's the faith that releases you. Because listen, that faith exists, or there's an object for that faith, a reason for that faith, because Jesus was a real man. He really did die. It wasn't just a phantom. It wasn't some sort of quick switch with Judas like our Islamic friends say. Jesus really died for us so that we wouldn't have to be in this fear. Almost done, last thing. His humanity, listen, secures our help. Verse 17, therefore it says, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. When it says in all things he had to be made like his brethren, it means he had to go through all of our experiences. And we'll talk more about this when we get to chapter 4, where it talks about that he was tempted in all ways as we were. But suffice it today for today, listen, when it says that he's as faithful and high priest, talking about the faithfulness of Jesus, listen, as a high priest, as the go-between between us and God, he's faithful in this, he's faithful to make atonement for our sin. This is what the high priest used to do in the Old Testament. The high priest would one time a year, it's the, now the Jewish holiday Yom Kippur, it's in September usually, one time a year, the high priest would go into the temple and we'd offer a sacrifice that was meant to cover over all the sins of all the people. And this was such a high holy day that it was such a huge thing that what was meant to happen was God himself would consume that sacrifice in the holy of holy place in the temple or the tabernacle. And so when they just had the tabernacle, what they used to do is they would tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest and they put bells that would jingle around him, so that as he's in the holy of holy place, sacrificing that perfect lamb to atone for the sins of the people, they could hear the jingling going on, and that jingling meant, okay, this work is going down. That means there's hope that there's going to be atonement. And if the jingling stopped, you know what that meant? He dropped dead, and they'd use the rope to pull him out. Scary. So listen, we're going to unpack what that, that picture is more and more in the book of Hebrews. It talks lots about this. But the point is this. He goes in there and he makes atonement. This is what Jesus did for us. Listen to what John says in 1 John chapter 2. Listen, guys. He says, My little children, these things I, have, uh, I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, like a defense attorney. Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself, notice, is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the whole world. This is why we can say to people, Jesus, pay the price for your sin. And it's honest, and it's real, and it's true. Because what that word propitiation means is simply this. That which satisfies the wrath of God has been given. So that God is no longer angry those who believe. He's made propitiation. When we say that Jesus is a faithful high priest, 
He, as a human, didn't just present the sacrificial lamb. His bells were jingling until he presented himself and died as the sacrificial lamb. Not just a lamb that covers up, just the blood from a lamb that would cover up sin, but the blood of a perfect man who can wash away sin. This is why we can say he's faithful every single time. In fact, right earlier in 1 John 1 is when he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. How does he cleanse us? With his blood. He makes it propitiation. Not only that, listen. It says in verse 18, I'm almost done, for in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, notice it says, he, all, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. In other words, listen, he's faithful to make atonement for our sins for sure, but also, listen, he's merciful to help us in our weakness. Isn't our temptation partly of our weakness? James says it is. Different from Jesus' temptation, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, our temptation comes from our own sinfulness. God, I know I shouldn't want this, but I want this. It's a bad thing, but I do. We go to God in those weaknesses. He doesn't go, what is wrong with you? He says, I know how hard that is for you. I've been tempted. I've lived the life that you live. I know how hard it is for you. And there's mercy. I'll close with this verse. I'm going to ask the music team to come back up as I close with this verse. Luke chapter 18. Jesus is telling this parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. One of my favorite parables. Pharisee, religious guy, someone who's supposed to be committed or dedicated to living for God, prays before God about all the great things he's done. God thinks that I'm not as bad as this guy. I'm really great about this guy. But the tax collector who knows he's a sinner says this. He says, And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Literally, be merciful means, Lord, make propitiation for me. Provide that the wrath that you rightly have for me be satisfied. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself is humbled, and he who humbles himself is exalted. Guys, do you get this? Do you get that when we talk about the humanity of Jesus, that we're talking about God the Son becoming a real man, as real as you are, subject to your weaknesses, feeling the, the temptations in a, in, a, in a real paralleled way to what you feel. That this Jesus is himself the propitiation. And what he calls us to do is he calls us to say, God, I've got to believe that you can help me. And I've got to believe that you will help me because of Jesus. I've got to believe that you're faithful. You can help me. And I gotta believe that you're merciful. You will help me. That's 
what justifies us before God, that kind of faith. So here's a simple question. Do you have that faith? See, when we say, you know, if you believe, you'll be saved. The Bible says if we believe that if we believe in Jesus, that he rose from the dead, that, that uh, he died for our sins and God rose him from the dead, that we shall be saved. What do we believe? And we're believing, do we believe that Jesus the man was also God the Son? Do we believe that, that Jesus the man was a sufficient sacrifice on the cross? That that was enough to propitiate, cover up, take away our sin, appease God's wrath towards our sin? Do we believe that? Do we believe that Jesus the man came back to life, not some sort of phantom, but as someone who could eat a fish sandwich for breakfast with his apostles? Do we believe that Jesus the man ascended to heaven, proving, sent to the right hand of the Father, proving that God is pleased with his work? Do we believe that? Do we trust him? Because that's what justifies us. That's what makes us right before God. Listen. The Jesus that we are called to walk with is the Jesus who did this for us. 